For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, from StoryCorps in Tucson, a man and his 10-year-old daughter discuss her growing political awareness. What is a micro-story? Find out about Dimalo, a new community-wide radio project. I'll talk with Patricia Ward-Kelly about how she celebrates the legacy of her late husband, the dancer and actor Gene Kelly. And meet singer Liz Wright. She'll be in town to perform for the Tucson Jazz Festival. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. The nonprofit group StoryCorps says listening is an act of love. More than 100 Tucsonans visited the StoryCorps mobile booth in Tucson last fall. Next, we'll hear Dan Benavides and his daughter, Zoe, to find out how she feels about a range of subjects. So, Zoe, tell me, how would you describe yourself? That is a good question. Um, how descriptive should I be? Like, I don't even know. I'm just going to say black, Mexican. Woo. Okay, well, woo, that's a good answer. Um, how do you feel about being a mixed-race child? Well, I think that some people don't really see me as mixed-race. I think they just sort of according to, like, my hair, because my hair is curly, or, like, my skin or something, they think, like, maybe that I'm just black. But if you sort of see me, my mom, and you, then I think they're they sort of think that I am biracial. And and then it's sort of like the same thing. Since mom's darker than I am and then I'm lighter than her, if you know, it's sort of like that. But I don't really think people see me as biracial. How do you see yourself? Biracial. Biracial? What does that mean to you? Well, I don't really know what it means. I guess that mm-hmm. you're Mexican, mom's black, I'm biracial, I guess. We've talked about how do you feel about how that's portrayed, like, in TV and on the radio and in the media. Well, like, it's sort of like when we saw that Nissan commercial, people um, that were in the commercial were African-American, and they sort of talked like they were from the South. And so, but if you look at other commercials, they sort of do the same thing. Like, they portray them as different people, and I'm black, and I don't say y'all in every other sentence and things. You don't speak with an accent? Not that I know of. And do any of your friends? So does that bother you when you see, like, always in TV that all the people of color have accents? Yeah, because it sort of says, like, oh, so you're Mexican, so you're going to speak like this. And I assume that all Mexicans speak like that. And it's the same thing with African Americans, you know? Yeah, yeah. Why do you think they do that? I don't know. Maybe it's just their lack of information on the cultural side or... So I'm going to switch topics, and this is something that we talk about a lot because yeah. you're very passionate about it. You're very passionate about gay rights. Where does that come from? Um, well, when I was in preschool and I was like three, four, and five, my best friend Soli and her moms were lesbians. That was sort of my big exposure to the world. Like there's other worlds outside of just mine. Like I always assumed that, the, that there was always like um, a mom, a dad, 
and children. But now that I knew that there was moms, moms or dads, dads, you know. And how's that make you feel? What did you think about that? I was just like, oh, okay, you know. It it didn't really soak in until much later that I was just like, hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know. So when your mom and your dad tell you about like when they were growing up, like in the eighties and the nineties, that that it wasn't okay to be gay and people were really um, prejudiced against when they were if they were gay, and then people didn't say they were gay at all. And now, how does that in your school? Is that the same case, or do people feel more comfortable with that? Not at all. There's two transgender kids at my school, and all people are always so welcoming to them, and it's just like people evolve. And their thoughts evolve, is what you're saying. Yeah. Okay. So you grew up in a time when you have an African-American president, you have women running for president, um, and you have gay rights, and you have um, people who are able to get married to whomever they love. What has it meant to have an African-American president to you? To me, it hasn't meant anything because Obama was the first president that I remember. Like, I don't remember Clinton or anybody else. Mm-hmm. So I remember that when he actually won in 2008, you and mom were crying, and I was just like, yay. You know, because I was just like, okay, we have presidents every four years. How is this different? You know, because I was still like three or four at that time. So I didn't understand why people were so emotional over that. Do you understand when um, mom and dad get emotional when we find books of people with color in it and, and, and we give them to you? Yeah, I sort of, it's funny because whenever mom and I play Barbie dolls, she always wants to somewhat incorporate the African-American dolls, and I used to get so mad at that. And now I realize that she didn't have any African-American dolls when she was growing up, so that's why she sort of wanted to help me embrace that fact. For some reason, I was just always drawn to the Barbies with the straight hair and like the skinny figure and I don't like change like I have my own little setup so when people try to like bring something new I I always sort of like push back and sort of you know so I was a little bit mad at that fact. Did you understand why your mom thought that was important? Yeah. Zoe Benavides and her father, Daniel, were recorded in the StoryCorps mobile booth in Tucson. You can find more local StoryCorps stories at azpm.org. We've been listening to the StoryCorps recordings here on Spotlight for the last few weeks, but there's a new bilingual project coming up where everyone can share their true experiences in the form of micro-stories in English or Spanish. Joining me to explain more about Dimelo, Stories of the Southwest, is the project's producer, Sofia Paliza Carr. I'm actually here as part of a special initiative called Finding America. That's a project with the Association for Independence in Radio and financially supported by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. And the idea is really that you're supposed to go outside of traditional public radio boundaries and listen to stories that are not traditionally uh, represented very well in public radio. Dímelo is um, Spanish actually for tell me. So the idea is that with this project, we take your personal experiences from living in Tucson and put it at the center of local reporting. And it's, um, uh, it's a micro-storytelling project, like you were saying, and it's a community storytelling project, and it's really supposed to be focused on the idea of identity, community, and the cultural geography of Tucson. Tucson has almost one million people at this point, and 41% of that population is Hispanic. And with this project, we want to ask questions 
like where do these different communities overlap and, and where don't they? How do different cultural communities experience, for example, the iconic Tucson events like the Gem Show or the All Souls Procession? And we really want to do that by highlighting local voices and underrepresented voices. So tell me about the mailboxes. So there are different ways to participate in the project, and one of the ways is through these playful mailboxes that we're putting up around town. We've designed them with a local artist, Rudy Flores, and you can go there and we'll have a story prompt every two weeks that you can answer, and you can submit your postcard or, or story to us in that way. Of course, you can also uh, do that digitally at dimelostories.org. And then we will put all of those online and then uh, we'll possibly be in touch to follow up to do a radio piece. I've seen the pictures of these mailboxes and there's one that looks like a cactus. There's one that lights up inside. Where are these going to be placed around the community? Well, what's interesting is they're going to kind of be moving around the community, but we're really trying to focus on uh, having community centers host them. So currently, the, the first places where you can find the mailboxes are Tumamak Hill. Um, you have to walk the hill to find it. Uh, El Rio, the health center that's located on the west side, and uh, the mission branch of the Pima County Public Library. And then we'll actually have one mailbox that will be sort of our mystery or roving mailbox, and that may show up uh, now and again around Tucson. So when can the people at home expect to start hearing some of these stories? So we've actually put out a few audio postcards, and they're already online at azpm.org. Dimelo Stories as a segment will actually be airing every single week on Arizona Spotlight, and we'll be featuring local voices on that show and then probably doing a couple other features. What's really exciting about this project is that it's shaped by the community. So we want to hear about your Southern Arizona experience, and that's really what's going to make the project. To help people get started, you're providing prompts or ideas to start working with. And I know the first one that we talked about is beginnings and fresh starts. Right. That seemed like a a really natural kind of prompt to start with, but we're gonna be using all sorts of prompts throughout the project. A lot of them will be very Tucson specific. For example, this week we've been asking about people's journeys and um, when they've embarked on a new journey. Do you have a clip you can play? Absolutely, so here's Gwen Hernandez and uh, she moved from Mazatlan, Mexico to the US when she was nine and it turns out that she found it to be very disorienting. Coming to school here, I did realize it, it hit me that my sister and I look different um, we, we look different because my mom dressed us in, in lace bobby socks and dresses and sandals. And here were the rest of the girls. They were wearing uh, just T-shirts with Michael Jackson prints and Rainbow Bright T-shirts and, and shorts and the Reeboks. And so we looked at us and I looked at them. And even though they, they were similar to me, they, we looked like we were from the other side, from El Otro Lado. And, and so that, that, that's when it hit me, well, well, where do we belong? Where are some of the places that this project is already starting to lead you? As I mentioned, we're really interested in looking at where cultural communities overlap and maybe where they don't and, and kind of these larger questions of identity and community. On a more individual level, we want to ask questions like, how does an elderly person of color experience a retirement community what does a teenager from Barrio Hollywood think of downtown? How does a kid navigate living between two or more cultures when they're at school? These kinds of questions, um, I think, could have really interesting answers. You can attend the public debut of Dimelo and the first ever live recording of Arizona Spotlight on Sunday at 5 p.m. at the El Casino Ballroom. We've got guests including author Lydia Otero, storyteller Molly McCloy, and performance poet Logan Phillips, among others. The event is free and open to the public. You can find information right now at azpm.org. 
And uh, you can go ahead and start participating in the project now if you check us out at dimelostories.org. That's D-I-M-E-L-O stories.org. All one word. Stay tuned for more Arizona Spotlight right after this break. Welcome back to the show. Patricia Ward grew up in a household that valued books most of all, and a family that rarely watched TV or went to the movies. So when she was asked to write a script for a documentary in 1985, she had no idea who the narrator for the project was. It was dancer, actor, choreographer, and director Gene Kelly. Kelly soon asked Patricia to become involved in writing and recording interviews for his autobiography, and they fell in love and had a marriage that lasted until Gene Kelly's death in 1996. Using the unpublished biography as a starting point, Patricia Ward Kelly assembled a show called Gene Kelly, The Legacy that she's bringing to the Invisible Theater in Tucson next week. I had no clue who he was, and my pet study in graduate school was word origins. It was etymology and poetry, and those both happened to be Gene's pet studies as well. So we sat in this room together and played word games and quoted poetry back and forth, and I was just enchanted by the middle of the week. I was He was such an extraordinarily bright man. He was really the true Renaissance man. He spoke French fluently, Italian, Yiddish. He read a book a day, and and it wasn't just any book. It was like he would say, you know, I, I think I'd like to reread all of Charles Dickens. So I would go to the library and get all of Charles Dickens, and then he'd say, I'd like to reread all of Evelyn Waugh. And at the end of his life, he was reading all of Patrick O'Brien and... I always say he was just this wonderful blend of erudite gentleman and Pittsburgh street kid where he grew up because he just had this immense uh, breadth of knowledge and and a kind of joy in it. And so it just kind of comes out and, and I just, I was blown away. And it um, really wasn't until the end of that week that somebody actually told me he was famous. And so our bonding was over words and language, and and that was really what became the root of his bringing me out. He asked me to come out to write his memoir, and then 
we got married five years into that process. So I recorded him every day in some format for over a decade. And as our relationship grew, he began to let down more of his guard. And by the end, it became, in his words, even kind of a Catholic confessional. So, You may not have been aware of his stardom at first, but as you spent time together out in public and having dinner <laughs> and so forth, how did Gene typically deal with the attention that he received? Well, it was, it was interesting. I, I remember distinctly the moment when I realized the magnitude of his celebrity worldwide. We were in Paris, and no one knew, ostensibly knew we were there. And we were crossing one of the plazas late at night, and just in the darkness, I heard someone whistling the opening bars of Singing in the Rain. And it was just a, a split second I just realized that this is a man of the world, not just... Hollywood. And I, you know, I miss him terribly. And I'm, I'm, it's, I'm very sad that he's gone. But I think that now with cell phones and the uh, recordings and things that there, there was very little privacy then of you know, 20 years ago. But now it's, it would be impossible. And I think the hardest thing for us was really toward the end of his life with um, his illness and finally his death was the, it was very hard to protect his privacy with his health care because people were selling, buying and selling that information very uh, quickly. And so that was a kind of critical time when it would have been very nice to not have to deal with that. But uh, Gene was very gracious about it. I think he was... He would sign autographs and he would um, take photos if people would kind of pause and wait. Um, but it it was interesting. Somebody, um, one time he told me this story that one of his uh, agents had said he was supposed to go to a black tie event and he didn't want to go and he was kind of kicking about it. And finally the guy just looked at him and said, nobody asked you to be famous. And Gene said... Okay, and he went in and put on the, the tuxedo to go out because he realized that it, the public is why you're where you are and, and you have a responsibility to them as well. What do you think was most important to Gene in the process of writing an, an autobiography or a biography? Why did he most want to do that? It's a good question. There were actually two things. Part of the reason I was brought out was because Gene was so unhappy with everything that had been written about him and that the accounts that are out there, so I always tell people, don't, don't read anything, don't, don't go online and read anything, just call me, because it's, uh, unfortunately, it's, it's inaccurate. And, and so Wikipedia and IMDB get things wrong, and the accounts of Gene are, uh, he called it Rashomon, he couldn't quite understand it, and as I looked at them, it wasn't the guy I knew, so he felt the need to tell his own story and to get the, the essentially the facts out, and he was very specific. In addition to that, um, he was very specific about how he wished to be remembered, and a lot of people know him up on the screen, and he really wanted to be known for being behind the camera instead of in front of the camera. And a lot of people will come up to me and say, did he ever choreograph anything, or did he ever direct? And that's really how he wanted to be known, for creating a particularly American style of dance and for changing the whole look of dance on film and, and the innovations. I mean, he was so far ahead of his time. And so... 
people see him up on the screen and they love that, but they don't realize he created what you're seeing and how revolutionary it is. And he was so good at combining athleticism with dance and a, a natural masculinity that he seemed so comfortable with himself um, that you you could follow him on these incredibly uh, well choreographed sequences and feel comfortable with him. You know, it, it wasn't like some artists who you can tell they're really pushing theirself. Gene may have been pushing himself, but he made it look easy. And he said that it, it was it was very hard to make it look easy, but that was what he was trying to do. Is trying to it, it appears incredibly accessible. I mean, people. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I think for the American male, it, it's that's why he continues to have such large audiences, and why his audiences are half men and half women, because people really the men can relate to it because they think, well, hey, he's a guy, I could I could do that. And the the style of dance, I mean, Gene, as I said, was trying to create this particularly American style because he, he'd grown up in the Depression and wanted to break away from European tradition of ballroom dancing on polished floors. He didn't want to dance like rich people. He wanted to create something that resonated with his life of a lower middle class Irish American kid. And there was no model. So he looked around and he's like, hmm. But there was nothing that really spoke to what he wanted to do. So he said, how does the American male move? Well, he went to what his original idea, he'd originally wanted to be a hockey player or a shortstop <laughs> for the Pittsburgh Pirates. Uh-huh. So if you look at his style of dance, it's he said, it's athletics, it's sports. That's how an American male moves. And so if you watch, his dance is very broad, wide open strokes, very low to the ground, uh, very similar to all of the sports that he played. Patricia Ward-Kelly will share more memories in Gene Kelly, The Legacy at the Invisible Theater in Tucson for two shows, Saturday and Sunday, January 30th and 31st. There's a link for details on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Singer Liz Wright says she remembers where she was when she first heard Calexico on the radio, and she immediately knew she wanted to work with drummer John Convertino. That quest led Liz to visit Tucson, where she recorded her 2008 album, The Orchard. This weekend, Liz Wright returns to perform at the Rialto Theater as one of the guest artists in the Tucson Jazz Festival. I started our conversation by asking Liz Wright to tell me about the role that the drums play in her band. Well, it probably makes sense to say first that um, my brother is a drummer, and we are 10 months apart in age, so I've always wanted his gig and mine at the same time. (laughs) And uh, I love the drums. I feel like the the drummer is the other storyteller in the band, and I I tell my drummer... um, if for any reason I have to, you know, I have to close my mouth and people don't hear words anymore, they still need to know the story and the sentiment uh, because of what you're doing. You know, and I, I also realized that um, the song really happens when uh, the drummer and I are locked into the same dance. Um, it's re- there's a lot of uh, dance inside of one tempo. There's a way to sit inside of it, and it's really important that... Um, that the drummer and I are really, really together. Um, they're the driver of dynamics and the storyteller in the band. There are a lot of great pictures of you on stage singing um, with a beatific smile on your face. And something I notice often is your eyes are closed. Um, am I the first person to point out to you that you often seem to have your eyes closed while you're on stage? 
my mom pointed it out to me a long time ago, and she said, uh, especially when I started singing you know, uh, secular music and I started having a career, she's like, you know, you really, you got to work on that, you know, and you got to use your body more and keep your eyes open. But I have to get wherever it is I need to go to be genuinely focused and calm and enchanted myself, and then I can open my eyes. Mark, I, I trust that by the time I finish singing, the people have had a moment in that day to think about themselves, think about their own lives. So, you know, having my eyes shut for half a show isn't the worst thing in the world. Um, <laughs> and, you know, every now and then I will force myself to hold them open uh, in the middle of something that's very vulnerable and tender because I like the electricity of my own, my own fear. I like to feel it sometimes on purpose, but... That's a special place to go, and I can't access some things uh, when I'm in the grip of that. Betty came by on her way, said she had a word to say about things today. When I was first um, contacted and told about you coming to town, I went online and I, I looked for a song to listen to to acquaint myself with your music, and uh, I, I found Riverman right off the bat, and that's a composition from a songwriter named Nick Drake, who um, I've heard the tune done by a few different people, a handful only. I mean, it's not as it's not in the standards book, but it probably should be. I have a short list of artists and projects that um, have given me permission. Sometimes uh, a beautiful piece of work can give you permission to be yourself and to even open parts of yourself as an artist that you have not had reason or occasion to access before. That's the experience that I had when I first heard Nick Drake's uh, Riverman. It was the first song of his I heard. And, and then uh, I also happened to see a short documentary about him uh, when I lived here in New York years ago. and. What I love about him as a songwriter is that he writes beautiful narratives, and he he wrote narratives that um, didn't have to have a resolve necessarily or completion or a goal. Um, but it's almost like he presented a series of, um, of photographs that had a little bit of motion in each one. Um, so he managed to write narratives that are, are very poetic, but that literally can be finished by the listener. You know, as to as to what they can mean, and I just think I just think he was a master. Liz, tell me what speaks to you loudest in a song. When you're looking for new material or you're looking for a song, what is really going to make a connection with you as a listener? You know, Mark, I learn as I listen. I have a few things I've observed. You know, I I, I appreciate a good story. I appreciate um, a melody that moves in a way that is compelling, uh, whether I can explain it or not. But the truth is. Um, there's some kind of spark that just really grabs me by the throat when I hear something that I need to, to study. And I say to study because I don't know that I can sing everything that I'm, that I'm grabbed by or that I can sing it right away. Um, but I know something intuitive about a song that I need to spend some time with. Um, yeah, and I, you know, I, I, I love um, beautifully, beautifully written things. I also love widely celebrated music because I'm really curious like what it means to be able to speak to a mass of people. I don't always know what it is, but there'll be a component of the song um, that it may take me years to figure out, but something grabs me immediately. 
And I, I am the person who has been a year trying to figure out what the heck that was. <laughs> I'll sing a song just to try to figure out what happened in the first moment of hearing it. <laughs> and I also sing stuff because uh, my father was a, uh, a a lover of literature. He read a lot of Shakespeare to me. He had a big book, um, Burgundy, a leather-bound book of Shakespeare's plays. And I always thought my dad sounded kind of crazy reading that stuff to me. And he smelled like, you know, an, an aircraft hangar. <laughs> and he often would <laughs> read it in his work clothes. But he uh, he would read uh, Shakespeare. He would read, um, you know, uh, Uncle Raymond's stories to us and African folk tales. There, there was an openness to the way he brought me up. And I just, I don't know, man. I, <laughs> I don't know. I sing a lot of stuff because I don't know. Liz Wright performs with the Larry Redhouse Trio at the Rialto Theater on Saturday as part of the Tucson Jazz Festival. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can also find our podcasts on iTunes. The show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The music is by Calexico. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Thank you.